How you doing, folks? Welcome back to yet another episode of In Defense of Liberation, the show that is working towards and educating about a true people's liberation movement and one day soon a true proletarian revolution. But until that glorious day comes, I am your host, Josh, and I'd like to say sincerely, uh, you know, thank you so much for stopping by. Um, Going into the year 2022, I plan on uh, getting some serious guests on the show, actually developing a little bit more of a style, a little bit more of a set routine possibly, and also um, really narrowing in on some more uh, heavy, uh, important, and uh, commonly undiscussed topics. One of which uh, we have discussed time and time again on the show, but really hasn't uh, gotten its entire own episode as far as I know, is uh, this idea of anti-imperialism. Now, I think we hear this terminology a lot. We hear terminology like anti-capitalism, anti-colonialism, anti-imperialism. We hear these phrases often, um, especially if you are in uh, left spaces Um, and commonly having discussions like these with people. Um, But however, I feel like uh, it seems that the chauvinism that exists within the West here and some of the more uh, labor aristocracy or what we might call petty bourgeois, um, basically this idea of upper middle class uh, mentality, really plagues and infects the average person's mind here in the U.S. empire. Now, of course, this is intentional. If we look at the greatest lie that was told during the uh, Roman empire's time, it was that if anybody moved to Rome, they would be able to become a citizen. And so much propaganda, so much militarism and uh, objective positioning and, uh, you know, uh, posturing came from this idea uh, that these people were truly equal, not just in word, but actually in existence. Now, we know this isn't true because if we look at the historical examples of how different groups under the Roman Empire's rule were dominated, enslaved, forced into labor, uh, and ultimately made to believe that whatever uh, ethnic or national background they came from was, of course, uh, secondary to the Romans um, and was, in fact, subordinate to the Romans as well. We see that still to this day. If we look at the examples of how different people, both within the empire and also by the empire on the outside, are treated differently and unequally, we can see that there is an intention there. We can see that there is a mission by the United States empire to dedicate its time and its energy and its education and its money and its news sources, its media, all towards painting this notion, this idea of what America is, what American life is, and what being American is, why you need to be patriotic, why you need to be proud of this country, why you need to not question anything about it. Um, 
And this is meant to form a certain mentality, a certain uh, collaborationist or opportunist feeling, which uh, ultimately leads towards people who are oppressed, who are exploited, not becoming as keenly aware about that exploitation and oppression as they need to to be able to impact it. Because I think a lot of people here in the empire, and also especially a lot of people worldwide who are affected by the empire, they know quite clearly what it is that is causing their problems. Or at least they have a genuine, uh, you know, educated guess, one might say, uh, to think about what it is that really could be the causal foundation of their oppression. Some people might say capitalism. Some people might say imperialism. Some people might say colonialism. Some people might say patriarchy. Some people might say a lot of things. Um, But if we look historically, we know that one of the most prominent forms of oppression is based on class. Class being the distinction between those who own the means of production and those who labor using the means of production, aka those who have and those who have not. Basically, society is split into those who have to labor, have to go to work, have to turn their bodies into machines for capital in order to be able to eat, have housing, education, health care, and just about anything that they could ever need. But then there are also those within society who own those means of production, who own the factories, who own the militaries, who own the schools, who own the media sources, who own all the jobs and the businesses, who own the uh, production companies, the transportation corporations, the banking firms. And those people are who we work for, whether directly or indirectly. Those are who dedicates, or excuse me, those are the people who dominate the uh, control. Those are the people who decide what our children and ourselves learned in our schools. Those are the people who decide uh, how much money will be taken from the Department of Education, the infrastructure, the social spending bills, and given to the Pentagon or different military contracting companies because as the Pentagon has been reportedly incapable of passing uh, its third evaluation uh, of its finances, um, it failed a third audit. Could you imagine any of us failing three audits? No, no, you wouldn't make it to the third. But the Pentagon is missing billions, billions of dollars that are just unaccounted for. Nobody knows where they are. They can't understand the books. Can't tell where money's going in some cases or if it's coming back. Can't tell who it's going to or where it's coming from in some cases. And so when you have a entity like the Pentagon or like our military industrial complex, you have to understand that the way in which these things were built and formed were for secrecy's sake and for the background um, upholding of the status quo through brutality, militarization, 
espionage, and uh, corruption. I am currently reading a book, which I've mentioned um, a few times. It's called OSS, The Secret History of America's First Intelligence Agency. Now, the topic that we're going to discuss in this episode is anti-imperialism. So I'm going to use some of what this book has taught me to build a little bit of a picture of what imperialism really has looked like throughout the years, right? So if we look at the earliest, earliest, earliest days of colonialism and colonization, what it really stems from is this want and need by the old world in Europe to expound outside of its borders because the oppression and exploitation that has gone on for thousands of years has finally come to a point where now the masses of people are demanding parliaments, they're demanding representation, they're demanding uh, connection with uh, the religious texts that they're meant to be uh, believing from the Pope, Uh, they're demanding an actual participation in their religious traditions themselves, they're demanding that, uh, you know, different types of freedoms and liberties be granted to uh, most most commonly uh, land-owning males. But not always, you know, there's some cases uh, where more had been demanded, but anyways. And also during this time, you had the Catholic Church in Spain really fomenting and requiring some kind of system to decide who it is that is able to benefit from this colonialization or uh, colonization, colonialism, and who will suffer and struggle and ultimately be the exploited and oppressed peoples who these benefits are stolen from. So, if you watch uh, Exterminate All the Brutes on HBO Max, there's a pretty decent case made for the idea that the Spanish Inquisition really was one of the most prominent uh, founding moments in uh, colonization that gave not only, you know, political grounds and economic ones as well. Obviously, Spain is wealthier than any of the other surrounding uh, countries at the time, and they are also the ones that are doing the colonization. So, of course, they have economic grounds to do so. They're making all of their wealth because of it, Um, and they have the wealth to do it. But now they also have the religious grounds based on the ideas of the Catholic Church that, in fact, anyone who wanted or felt that they deserved to be called Catholic had to be a certain percent or a certain amount of pure blood, non-Jewish blood. And so the uh, Catholic Church sent inquisitors and others all around the world to torture, capture, enslave, and uh, brutalized these people who they claimed because they either A, were of dark skin, or B, uh, according to, I think it was either, there's three places that this source could have came from. Either one, Christopher Columbus's own journal, 
the Journal of the Saint, I think he might have even been a cardinal, who went along with some of the first uh, ships into the Caribbean with Columbus and others. Uh, and he also took a journal. I can't remember what his name is, but it was... It's prominent, and it's where you really get a lot of the discussion about how awful the treatment of the indigenous peoples were is through this person's uh, own diary, which his name is Bartolome de las Casas. He went to the West Indies, um, and he reported on the atrocities committed against indigenous people in what we might now know as the Dominican Republic and Haiti. And the last place that it could be is a release of a speech or a document from the Catholic Church themselves, where they basically said, uh, you know, uh, uh, paraphrasing here, they basically said that if you go to these communities and you try to build society how you want society or how Europeans have done society, and they do not accept it, they resist it, or they don't understand it, this is grounds for uh, termination or domination because according to, again, I can't remember what exactly the source is, but basically according to the Catholic Church, if these indigenous peoples can't accept the ways of European life, then they do not deserve life in general. Uh, Obviously, whether this was written in word or not, this was the sentiment that the uh, Spanish inquisitors as well as the uh, subsequent uh, settlers and uh, colonizers, this is a sentiment they uh, acted upon. So because of this, um, there's a history of theft, enslavement, and exploitation of billions of people worldwide in the Americas, that is both North and South Americas, as well as the Caribbean, Latin America in general, if we want to get a little bit more broad, Africa and Asia. If we look at all of these, uh, you know, regions and and continents, then we see that a majority of the world's population starts at approximately a quarter of the amount of preparedness, uh, relative access to resources, education, uh, stable economy and system, democracy of any kind, these things are non-existent for a majority of the world because uh, any and all governments that were attempted to be set up, any, uh, you know, liberation or resistance fights that were attempted, any kind of economy that was uh, once in existence or developing was destroyed. It was destroyed and then the energy was capitalized on by the colonizers and they used this as an opportunity to further exploit and oppress these uh, millions of people. So that's the basis to colonization, right? That is the basis to the development of the colonized world and the colonizing world. Once we make our way into the 17 and 1800s, you have a development of what we might call imperialism. Now, 
Ultimately, we know as Marxists that the dialectical development between colonization and imperialism allow for certain differences in forms. But ultimately, the essence of a lot of everything that happened during the colonial and imperial periods have been similar in essence. What I mean by this is the fact that in both colonial and imperial empires, you have a majority of people who are used, uh, misinformed, propagandized against, in order to be the new soldiers, the new front for these imperial or colonial powers. You also have a use of this colonization and imperialism for the detriment and exploitation of the colonized or imperialized nation and people. When you colonize, you go in, you take over, you oppress and enslave, you steal the wealth, you steal the resources, you steal the women and children, you steal all the knowledge, you steal the culture, you destroy the resistance, and you hope that by sheer brute force, ultimately, in a lot of cases, that people will refuse to stand up. Now, in imperialism, you do a lot of the same thing, except now we add a couple things to the list. Now, you don't necessarily always have to just outright occupy occupy the place. You can dominate the military, the industry, the uh, technology, the political and economic systems from abroad through finance capital, through the private military contracting firms. And if you look at the example of the early uh, British East India Trading Company, a lot of the contracts that were signed between European corporations uh, by, you know, for example, Eastern Uh, empires and and countries was because the militarization and the commitment to utter brutality by the British, by the French, and by many others after them was seen as an opportunity by these Eastern empires as a necessity to not have to build up and develop their own forces as such. They can simply pay these people or employ these people and they will do the work for them. But as we know, even this early, early example is a foundational opportunity for those oppressive and extremely brutal regimes in uh, the old European world to begin taking over from inside the empire of Uh, whatever country it was that uh, asked for their assistance. This is true uh, also if we look at the economic field. One thing that we definitely forget is the fact that the United States, Britain, France, Italy, Spain, Germany, the Netherlands, uh, Denmark, Finland, Russia... All of these countries would send economists, industrialists, Wall Street bankers, um, oil executives, all these people all over the world to try to make secret deals with one another, to try to, you know, decide that, 
okay, well, this U.S. firm is going to develop your energy grid because, you know, if that is the case, then the people who will benefit from the profits that are to be made, you know, off of that energy grid will be the United States empire, not whatever country it is that is trying to develop their energy infrastructure. Uh, If you, you know, have a country that says, all right, the U.S., I need you to come in and I need you to send some generals over here. I need you to bring some soldiers, some National Guardsmen, because, um, you know, we're trying to take over this region or we're trying to fight back against these liberationists and revolutionaries who are trying to fight for, you know, uh, a different world and uh, we need your military support. Well, what happens when the, uh, you know, battles are won? What happens when uh, the United States and its military is able to dominate so heavily the regions within, for example, the uh, Middle East, Africa through AFRICOM, if we look at also some of the uh, different ongoing uh, wars in regions in uh, Asia and the posturing and militarization of the U.S. empire, the Australian government, and the U.K. government uh, in the South China Sea with nuclear submarines, then we can see quite clearly that this too is uh, one way in which they will begin to set their foot in the door. Basically what, uh, you know, that early stage of colonialism did and what some of the earliest stages of imperialism did was establish a root in whatever nation it was. And that root, unlike other roots, um, unlike the roots of, you know, tall, beautiful trees or the roots that different uh, fungi and mushrooms for, form that allow, you know, connection, communication, uh, cooperation between the different plants. That is not the case of the root that comes from the U.S. or the imperial uh, country in question. The roots of the British Empire, the French and German nations, the roots that the United States and other colonial empires like Canada have established across the world are roots that are super exploitative. They destroy the soil. They suck up all the nutrients, all of the metals, all of the uh, vitamins, all of the minerals. They suck up all of the water. They suck up all of the life from within these nations. And they do so from just about every corner, from just about every sector and, you know, uh, government position that they can. So in a lot of cases, again, militarism is the necessary first step towards invading a country. Because if you don't have people inside, if you don't have people who are supporting you, you have to get in somehow, you know? Well, the OSS, right was pretty fucking good at this. Really, really, really good at developing key connections in countries like fascist Italy, in countries like fascist Spain, in countries like fascist Germany, in countries like fascist Finland. All of these nations are countries where the OSS had deep ties and was really beginning to develop more 
after the uh, Second World War, when the foundation of the CIA and FBI ultimately, uh, you know, absorbed and exerted power over the COI, the OSS, and the other uh, intelligence agencies that were more, uh, at that point, clandestine than the state department uh, developed forms of intelligence. Even though, as we must know, the OSS, what was once called the COI, the Commission of Information, was developed and ultimately built by uh, FDR through uh, the New Deal, which the COI was a part of. Um, Let us remember this quite clearly. So now that we know this, right, we know that the uh, government, in fact, as it always does, is directly involved in the efforts to um, destabilize, uh, divide, and overthrow nations across the world because the foundation of the United States empire is colonialism, settlerism, and imperialism. So in understanding that, we must understand that the only way that this nation is able to prop itself up and continue to exist as it once did and as it wants to is through the continuation of that, uh, you know, settler colonialism and imperialism Um, to an extent where eventually these become less, uh, you know, physically established developments and more just underlying systems that predicate and cause certain developments to occur in certain ways. Because, of course, you know, for example, in the United States, uh, you know, it's colonialism is an underlying system where even though we are, in a lot of cases, trying to uh, find ways to stave off the resistance energy of indigenous peoples uh, through the appointment of folks like Deb Holland to the Secretary of the Interior. It is, in fact, clear that colonialism still does exist because this is even a part of colonialism. Colonialism as a system where it uh, neutralizes and co-ops the resistance efforts and movements of different groups through the uh, different forms of appeasement and representation. Now, shout out Deb Holland because Deb Holland is in one of the most difficult positions uh, that just about any government representative is in. She is expected to take on just about every issue that indigenous people are facing by herself as the secretary to the Department of Interior. She's surrounded by white dudes in a country built on the destruction of her people. How is it that we can expect this one person to be... I mean, even if they are, uh, which I'm not quite too sure that Deb Holland is, but even if they are one of the most revolutionary people in the world, can we really expect these individuals in these positions of power built by the nation that is oppressing us today is really going to be what it takes to overthrow this system? I don't think so. I personally do not think so. I think that it's a way in which we can do things for the meantime, get our ideas out there and begin to try to organize people. But I do think that that is truly the limits that some of these positions in uh, representative politics uh, afford us. So until we are able to do more, we have to do at least this. 
But colonialism and imperialism have developed in many different forms through many different efforts all across the world. And that's really what I want to talk about. And as I'm talking about this, I want people to focus in and understand the fact that if we know that this gigantic fucking web of exploitation and oppression exists. Why is anyone, anyone who calls themselves the left not explicitly demanding an end to this imperialist system first and foremost? That has to be so central to our argument because how do you say we're going to have socialism, we're going to end capitalism without taking on imperialism? How do you say we're going to organize the people when half of the people here in this nation thinks that it's perfectly okay that we're in the Middle East just murdering people? How are you going to be able to organize the people when half of them think that their son or daughter or child died in a war fighting for freedom when in fact they were fighting for the United Fruit Company or for ExxonMobil or for the World Bank? How are we going to be able to get people to this level of understanding if we do not have a clear line on the fact that imperialism is the foundation to the continuation of the monopoly capitalist system to this day? And until we completely overthrow and take down that imperialist system, the contradictions, the exploitation, and the oppression that people are feeling here in this world, in this nation, and also all over the world, will continue unabetted. Or at least it will continue in a different form. Um, For example, you know, if we pass laws that say, okay, women and non-men are equal in the workforce, they're going to get equal pay, they're going to get equal hours, they're going to get equal protections, they're going to get equal insurance and political rights. What does that gain us? In a country which is dominated by a ruling class full of capitalists, uh, imperialists, bankers, pharmaceutical companies, etc., what does these political and economic rights truly get us in the way of liberation? It might get us a tolerable existence within the capitalist system, which we must all be looking for because we have to survive. And we cannot just say, well, these things aren't going to do what they need. So let's not give women and non-men these equal rights. No, we have to pass these things. We have to develop these, you know, struggles. But in doing so, we have to have the clear understanding and line that this is a step towards the actual goal. This is not the objective. This is a part of the process. Because we have to politicize the people. We have to give them those rights and then have to allow them to see that those rights don't actually change anything. We can't just tell them because until they've had those rights, until they've experienced them, of course, you know, in in the 70s, if you're sitting around telling gay people, uh, transgender folks, women, non-men saying like, no, you know what? I don't really think that you deserve to get married or to have like equal participation in the economic field. I don't think that you should be able to, you know, have a bank account. Women couldn't have a bank account in their name until 1976, divorce, you know, without their husband's name on it. I don't think you should be able to get a hysterectomy or be able to, you know, have an abortion without your uh, significant partner here. So uh, we're just not going to do any of that shit for you because it's not really revolutionary. No! In the 70s, 80s, and 90s, people knew what they wanted and they were demanding it in many different ways than one. But if at any point 
those of us who were convicted to help these people, those of us who were conscious enough to realize that these folks need support from the broad masses, if we consciously ignore these struggles, if we consciously ignore the struggles of land back, of women's liberation, of trans liberation, of black liberation, and an end to the, you know, different forms of contradictions and exploitation within the empire, then what are we really fighting for? Are we fighting for a non-imperialist system where white men continue to benefit from the system? Are we fighting for a non-capitalistic system where I and those who think like me instead dominate? No! If you are listening to this podcast, if you are listening to me, you must know that my line is this. We must end all exploitation, all forms of oppression of humans by humans. We must end any and all opportunity for those to exploit the labor by purchasing the labor of others. We must fight so that all folks, whether black, brown, indigenous, Asian, or white, whether male, female, transgender, uh, non-binary, or gender non-conforming, whether they are poor, middle class, if we can even call that such a thing, uh, convinced of, you know, wealth by their own poverty, or purely poor, it doesn't matter. Every single one of these people here is a human being that does not deserve the kind of oppression that human beings worldwide over continue to face. And so everything we must do must be a clear and conscious fight to end all of that. In doing so, we have to understand what has the real possibility to end all of those things. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about it, right? I got to fucking walk inside. Give me one minute here. Um... What uh, I would like to discuss real quick uh, out of this OSS book that will help us shift to, to this discussion of you know, how we can develop uh, politics and a struggle that is able to take on imperialism. Um, in this book, uh, OSS, The Secret History of America's First Secret Intelligence Agency, there's a few things that I really, really want to point out. First and foremost, if, um, if I go through and I read the names of all the individuals that, you know, started these organizations that were a part of them, if I look into all of the names that are mentioned as, you know, individual participants as, you know, uh, espionage agent or a pilot on a plane to drop off supplies to different resistance groups, most of these people are directly, somehow or another, connected to the capitalist system. Now, one of the most uh, you know, prominent ways in which this is uh, true is if we look at some of the earliest agents in the OSS. They are sons and daughters of Rockefellers, of J.P. Morgan, of uh, just about any uh, oligarch you could think of. Uh, they are also oftentimes bankers. Uh, like, for example, um, when I was reading about some of the earliest developments of the OSS in uh, France and in Italy, almost all of the uh, names 
that were mentioned, when I went to look them up, all were at one point or another in their life, members of the board of directors of either the uh, Citibank of America. Um, uh, there was a few other ones. Oh, geez. I think it's the National Bank of America. I don't know. But they were all board of directors at banks, just about all of them, in, who went to, to France and Italy. And, you know, I would assume I, I haven't gotten to the post-World War II part in the book yet, but I would assume that post-World War II, a lot of the folks who are asked by, so the founder's name is uh, William Donovan, uh, Wild Bill, he was called, Bill Donovan, um, a lot of the people that probably were requested after World War II to go to Germany were probably also bankers. Um, if you read uh, Kwame Nkrumah's neo-colonialism, you can see that one of the most forceful, uh, you know, groups in the colonization. Uh, the recolonization, the further colonization of Africa was the Deutsche Bank. But if you read Imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism by Lenin, and you also look into the connections with Deutsche Bank, Deutsche Bank you know that most of Deutsche Bank's finance capital comes from the United States. A huge portion of the money that is sitting in a lot of the banks worldwide is either A, the United States itself, like it, it is their capital from, you know, individuals and organizations and banks and, and industries within the U.S. Or if it's not the U.S.'s itself, it's money that they attained through help by the United States. For example, the OSS, one of the main things that it did was it helped to connect resistance groups to, you know, uh, people who would be able to give them guns, people who would be able to train them, people who would be able to parachute into enemy territory with them. Um, but most importantly, it gave them money. Most importantly, it gave resistance groups money. So if we look at some of the earliest examples of OSS involvement in, um, in France and in Italy, a lot of what they were trying to do was just get people to accept money so that in doing so, then the OSS and by, you know, proxy, the U.S. empire, had domination over how these different resistance forces, these different militant groups, because they weren't always um, resistance groups in the sense that we might think, but more like, um, like for example, de Gaulle in Germany, right? He was considered a part of a resistance group. If we look at a lot of the like uh, monarchists in Italy, who wanted to overthrow uh, Benito Mussolini and reestablish a authoritarian, um, you know, 
exploitative and unequal system under the former monarch. So because of this, you know, it's difficult, but we have to understand that these words, resistance, liberation, we have to know the context. We really have to study these groups deeply a lot more than we do often. I would like to point that out. Um, there's a lot of people who, as soon as they pick up a gun, there were folks defending the fucking Taliban. Anyways, I'm getting lost here and I'm losing time. Imperialism ultimately is the attempt by whatever power to control and dominate the wealth, resources, land, and labor force of a given country through either military, uh, finance, capital, or, you know, uh, indirect domination. The OSS was huge to laying the roots of U.S. empire all across the world during the First and Second World Wars. And then, of course, as we know, during this time, the U.S. was also incredibly involved in the armament of just about every world power. This is where the United States empire came from. This is where the U.S. really was able to build itself up, is through the exploitation of the wealth that was accumulated by the imperialist world powers and using that towards arming them further so that they can continue to exploit and steal more wealth. Uh, But now this time, those guns that they're doing to use it are, you know, Smith & Wesson or Remington. Um, And the money that they're passing between, you know, different fascist groups and, uh, you know, different, uh, you know, groups like the Mujahideen, uh, it's, uh, you know, uh, based, you know, it might not be U.S. capital, but it's backed in U.S. capital. Um, A lot of the machines, a lot of the uh, manufactured products, all are being developed through, uh, in a lot of cases, the domination of the United States empire of the resources, which are then sold to these companies in order to develop their products, which then, you know, the United States appropriates and sells for a massive profit to continue itself as the uh, capitalist world power. So imperialism then and colonialism are systems. They are not just events. They are not just periods in time. They are not just certain actions, but not other actions. We can't get a, you know, a Venn diagram and say this is imperialism and this is colonialism and this is both of them. Colonialism and imperialism should and can really only be separated by their time periods. But ultimately, this is, uh, you know, in a lot of cases, uh, nonsensical. Because again, they establish themselves as status quo, uh, you know, parts. So when you say, for example, um, you know, I don't think we should be at war in the Middle East. People will take that as you saying, I don't support the United States government. Because of how directly intertwined and developed into the system, these things of war, capitalist exploitation, pollution, patriarchy are entirely uh, you know, welded 
to the United States empire. They are what makes the United States empire what it is. You know, that's that's really what clarifies and, and designates the U.S. as the type of country it is. So going forward and talking about, you know, what really needs to be done, I think a few things are in order. First and foremost, we need land back. Land back is one of the most crucial steps that we can take towards not only saving the earth from pollution and climate change based on the IEN report that came out recently, which is mentioned time and time again on Red Power Hour by Red Nation, which you should check out with Melanie Yazzie and uh, um, Elena, uh, I can't remember her last name, so I do apologize. But um, check out that report because it says that approximately 70%, of the ongoing attempts to destroy the planet, you know, pipelines, uh, land seizure, in uh, other forms of destruction, you know, water pollution. If we look at the report, again, I believe it was the IEN. Uh, do not quote me if I'm wrong. I do apologize. If you look at the report that they put out, 70% of these projects that would be destroying the planet right now are being actively stopped and resisted by indigenous organizers and activists. We have to know that land back needs to happen because land back is not the idea that we normally conceive of it as. I'm not the person you need to listen to to know what land back is. Go check out the Red Nation. Go check out Bands of Turtle Island. The homies coming on on January 20th, so be on the lookout for that. Um, not only do we need land back, but we need an end to the imperialist system in general. Um, by any means necessary, had one of the uh, co-hosts of Is This Really Happening.net on to talk about the recent military budget. So if you don't know, Somewhere between 20 and 50 billion extra dollars was given to the Pentagon budget more than they requested. Now, of course, this comes on the heels of the U.S. uh, leaving, quote unquote, uh, their main uh, military objectives in Afghanistan. Uh, This is as they are uh, turning in a lot of cases towards Asia, towards Africa, in Ethiopia and Eritrea and in the South China Sea using things like Taiwan, Hong Kong, and other forms of, uh, you know, distractive uh, ideas to really convince us that, um, again, just like they did in Iraq, just like they did in uh, uh, Afghanistan, Iran, Somalia, and in Syria, they convince us that there are all these atrocities going on, you know, these human rights abuses, these uh, attacks on women, as if these atrocities are not actively ongoing in the United States. So if we want to build an anti-imperialist struggle, we have to understand that it has to take on the reactionary forces here in the United States, but it also has to do so not just to stop the suffering of people in the United States, because we cannot just solely be focused on this land, on this continent, in this nation. We can't just be focused in on making sure that we're doing better. We also have to do that so that we can help each other. 
And we have to, have to, have to, have to know, it, it has to be clear to us that if we overthrow the country here in the USA, which could stand for anything, as George Jackson says, um, if we overthrow the ruling class, imagine the breath of air, the freedom that these regions like Haiti, like, uh, I don't Colombia, like the Philippines, like Syria and Somalia, um, all of these nations for different reasons would be given the opportunity to allow their people to struggle and fight for true, you know, forms of popular power and proletarian democracy in such a more militant fashion, in such a more organized one, if the U.S. empire was not so actively involved in different forms of hybrid warfare and regime change. Please read Washington Bullets by B.J. Prashad. Check out Guerrilla History Podcast with Henry Huckamaki, uh, Adnan Hussein, and Brett O'Shea. And the last thing I will say is this. If you are not, at the very least, committed to the idea that the United States empire cannot continue to exist, and that imperialism in total, all over the world, everywhere, by everyone, needs to stop, then we're not on the same page. And before we can get towards the same goal, we have to be on the same page. Because we can't just simply be against some of the same things. We have to be for the same things. We have to be for revolution, for scientific socialism, and for the emancipation and liberation of all exploited and oppressed people globally. Thank you for listening. Please stay safe, stay healthy, stay revolutionary. Feel free to reach out at any time in defense of liberation at gmail.com or find me on TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Peace out, y'all. I hope you're well. Happy New Year. Uh, go out and organize, get connected, build the revolution, and let us fight this imperialist system. No war with China, no more Cold War, no more imperialism, no more Pentagon no more military, no more National Guard, no more Senate, no more Congress, no more House of Representatives, no more executive, judicial, or legislative branch. Take it all down. It's time for the people. Long live the revolution, folks. We'll see you next time. Peace.